On Agenda this week, we hear from the MHK for Questions, Jason Moorhouse, about his concerns over reserve management and eagerness for graduates to return. Treasury Minister David Ashford says nothing to see here regarding reserves, but also tells us about the Income Tax Bill 2022. That's the legislation, not the bill we all have to pay. I began by asking Mr Moorhouse why he raised the matter of returning graduates with the Enterprise Minister in last week's Keys sitting. Jason Moorhouse, the MHK of many questions. Um, I, I've picked one particular one that you asked uh, this last week, which is the um, uh, t- was to, to the Enterprise Minister mm-hmm. in relation to uh, how we encourage graduates to come back mm-hmm. to the island. Um, I suppose the first thing I would ask is, is wh- why you felt that question was necessary. I think it covers a lot of areas in terms of teachers, other key workers, um, the finance sector, there's that continued need to replenish the local workforce with new graduates and it appears there are opportunities out there at the moment at the same time, the recovery from COVID in the employment market has been faster than was anticipated. So I was asking the Minister what is being done to ensure anyone who might consider coming to the island is actually considering it and coming. And, and I mean, do we have a significant problem uh, in, in that regard, would you say? I mean, the, the, I think there was a, a report or, um, or a study, I can't remember, uh, that was released recently that showed 50% of, of graduates returned to the island. That's a reasonably high uh, level compared to uh, many towns, certainly across the United Kingdom. That's it. And I think with COVID as well, that's also helped that people came home and they stayed home and looked for jobs here. But I think it's one of those things that... This time of the year, people are actually looking at what they will do after they finish the course this year, and those who are continuing to next year do the same thing. So it's that kind of opportune moment. And it gave the Minister the chance to talk about the Graduate Fair, which will happen on the 14th of April, and that that's useful. This is giving that extra awareness and that extra consideration, because it, it's, it's hard to actually get that kind of focal point around which graduates can look and meet different employers and consider different opportunities. So... That's a positive aspect. And, and uh, we heard uh, on uh, last week's show from Paul Crane, Tinwald considered his particular concern, which is about the, the whole uh, demographic profile of the island mm. and the fact that um, already there's a kind of an imbalance between those who depend on the workforce and the workforce in terms of numbers. So the, the people of working age actually directly employed are... Uh, perhaps, uh, well, they're a dwindling number and, mm. and those who are going to depend on that workforce are are uh, growing exponentially. So so actually, uh, in, in relation to that, I suppose your question is one way of, of, of addressing that issue. Oh, definitely. And as you pointed out in the programme last week, it's that the next 15 years that are going to be so important. There are going to be so many additional pensioners who will need that support, that advice. And, you know, the graduates who've got that qualification in the relevant areas hopefully going to be useful but I think it's one of those things we need to look at we need more educated the workforce is hopefully more productive they are and more output we get and as we're kind of recovering from COVID and looking for new ways to go forward it's a good time to be encouraging those people to come to the island and either to work in established businesses or potentially start their own up so it's a good time to consider it and to push that group of people. And, and is it is it do people who have just finished their degrees that uh, you're you're particularly targeting through this question or or are we looking at perhaps people who've had maybe four or five years experience of work 
in, in the UK or perhaps both? I think in the first instance it was look at the new graduates because they're more free, they've got less commitments in many cases but um, in terms of looking at new graduates now they aren't like when we were graduating there's a much greater variety so yeah it, it, we need to consider wider potential but also in terms of yeah, those slightly older people because as your program was indicating last week this is the age group kind of the under 40s that we need more of and if they're educated and skilled then they have the potential to contribute more and benefit all of us potentially so yeah it's it's as wide a group as possible but it's coming back to that skills base ensuring that the hospital's got the employees they need the schools have got the teachers they require and those key areas are dealt with because as i've kind of highlighted in the past few weeks in terms of education there's a real issue there and I've got a question linking to that. It's going to be quite interesting in terms of the answer provided by the minister because it's been recently heard that there's going to be quite an interesting broadcast being put out next week by the head teachers on Ireland to kind of show what is available and to encourage people to look at the island as a place to come and teach and, yeah, prosper. So that will be interesting, definitely. One of the other areas that you've you've taken a great interest in, of course, is uh, and, and this was I think uh, certainly in, in in your material when you were elected uh, five yeah. five five and a half years ago. Uh, you um, you were very keen on making sure we protect the reserves, mm. and and you've been focusing a little bit on that uh, lately. Yeah, it's been quite an interesting time in terms of we currently are looking forward in terms of how those reserves will be managed. And up until this point in time, we've been very traditional. We've focused on local companies. We've used a very traditional method of managing those reserves. And we appear to be taking quite a, a sudden shift in the strategy that's been employed to deal with that money. And um, it's kind of something that's been dealt with by Treasury. I've found out about it almost by accident. And I've been trying to find out more information about why there's been the shift and what benefits and potential negative consequences there will be of having such a shift. Because, of course, when particularly when inflation is, is running high, mm. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm no economist, so, yes. so forgive me if I've got this wrong, yeah. but when, uh, certainly when it, uh, inflation is running high, mm. the chances are you're going to get a greater return uh, from your investments. It's when, uh, when in, effectively inflation stagnates, that's, that's yeah. the, the harder time to actually achieve great returns. I mean, is, is that the... the that's the, it, is, and yeah. really the last two or three years have been tough with COVID and... Uh, March 2020, the market kind of fell off a cliff as people were concerned about where we're going. We we had the lockdown starting 23rd of March 2020, new com- environment completely. And since then, we've kind of come back slowly. And the Treasury appeared to have taken this as an opportune moment to actually do something quite dramatic in terms of looking at an investment strategy that's going to be more modern, um, possibly have more of our reserves going to the UK to be looked after and it's quite a shift in terms of there's always been that kind of local emphasis Mm. and encouraging local businesses to grow and diversify and the five current managers of the investment funds are big local companies that employ lots of people, they contribute a lot and it's going to be interesting what happens in the next six months in terms of which of those companies will be successful and which might not be. And and is have you managed so far to elicit a reason for for for, for the, this this change, and particularly uh, the the thought of moving uh, the investments away from Manx-based companies? It's been difficult because 
we've got um, an issue in terms of with a procurement process, tender process that's gone on at the moment, and that makes it difficult for the Minister to actually discuss the wider issues. But I've been trying to focus on the actual strategy, how that kind of changed from this very conservative, very traditional method that's kind of been serving as well for the past 30 years to going in a different direction. And because the different direction is reflected in the procurement process, there's been that kind of, oh, we can't raise this publicly. And I was quite surprised last week in Timor when I said to the Attorney General, can I actually ask the Treasury Minister a question and expect an answer? And the response I got from the Attorney General was that in terms of, he couldn't comment on it in terms of the procurement process, but also in terms of it couldn't refer to a specific question without seeing it. And it kind of created wider issues because it was a rare occasion when the president of Timor said to me, there will be no supplementary question. And it's kind of one of those things you expect as a member of Timor to be able to ask one question and then get clarification and allow to move forward. So I felt quite vulnerable in a way last week. And it was kind of quite an odd situation that I was asking question three and question four so when question four was asked, I kind of stood up and said to Mr. President, is there a reason why I can't ask a supplementary? And it was a case of, this is now question four, we have moved on. So, yeah, it, it was difficult. And I've asked probably four or five questions in keys linking to this. And the minister, wherever there's been the opportunity to say, I can't answer this question because of the current process, he's used to answer. Yeah. Timul questions uh, are primarily to elicit answers in relation to policy. That's and it. if the policy has changed, yeah. uh, the minister can explain that to you. Well, uh, obviously, yeah. the minister can't engage with discussion Definitely. about how, how an ongoing procurement yeah. process is, is, is being That's handled. It. But the policy, yeah. surely. And I've, tr- I've tried to work around that by indicating to the minister which areas I will be looking at in the hope that he'd be more generous with his information and see that it was clearly looking at something specific to what happened prior to the current procurement process and on occasions he's been wonderfully given with his answers and on other occasions he's stopped and said sorry I can't progress with this answer so it's been a difficult situation but it's been good to have been able to raise something in the public arena and people be able to ask questions and have an awareness that something is happening and the minister has always been very clear that once the process is complete he will produce a booklet of my questions and provide the detailed answers. And at that point, it won't be too late to actually make any changes that are seen as being appropriate. So, yeah, I feel that I've done a good job in raising a possibility. And if there are questions to be asked at the last point, they could still make a difference. That was Jason Moorehouse. So what's the Treasury Minister's take on the change to managing our reserves? Minister, have there been any significant policy shifts on this? Well, I'm limited in what I can say on this, Phil, because there is a tender running. I know Mr Morehouse has put um, many questions into the um, House of Keys around this, and I'm afraid the answer for this is going to have to be exactly the same, which is once the tender process is over, I will happily do um, a full interview around it. I'll happily speak till the cows come home about it, but I'm not going to do so while there's a live tender process and there's the risk of jeopardising. What I can say, though, 
know is that Treasury obviously monitors the way our reserves are managed very, very um, carefully. Um, we will make changes to mandates where we believe it's appropriate. And one of the key things is to ensure that we get the value for money out of what is at the end of the day taxpayers' money that we should be doing. Um, and it is, and one of the questions that Mr Morehouse, of course, asked um, was, is it open to people on Ireland and off Ireland? And the answer to that is yes. And I suppose the question I asked was, have there been any policy changes to the way in which our reserves are managed? So in terms of policy, as I say, that's tied into the tender. So I'm not going to discuss anything around the tender at this time. Um, but what I would say is um, what what we look at constantly from policy is, are we getting value for money for our reserves? And then we will tweak any mandates accordingly. So we're not going to get a yes or a no even to the question, have we changed the policy? So in terms of the policy, the policy is very, very clear. The headline policy is to ensure we get best value for money for the taxpayer and that headline policy has not changed. The Income Tax Bill 2022, how do we make this sound interesting? Well, it's a very important piece of legislation, and I think it's one of the probably neglected pieces of legislation when it comes to the public being aware of it. It um, basically brings into force into primary legislation what are termed temporary taxation orders. Now, these can sometimes be quite fundamental changes um, that come in as orders through Timwell to begin with, but in order for them to continue, they need to be transformed into primary legislation. So this um, this particular bill deals with um, substance requirements for partnerships, that is something that's an international requirement for the Isle of Man um, in terms of finance to ensure that we keep to the international standards. And one that's probably closer to home, it brings in the temporary taxation order that was passed at the budget around TT Homestay, where we changed it from uh, to being an, an income tax allowance. Um, so that's something people probably more resonate with more with than the uh, substance requirements. Yes, uh, I, I imagine, well, certainly my eyes started to glaze over when we started talking about uh, uh, economic substance. Um, and and I, I suppose the first question is, what is a temporary taxation order? Um, and you know, certainly from my, my reading of things, it appears that a temporary taxation order is a way of avoiding having to pass an act of uh, tin mould. It's a swift way of bringing regulations in that may need to be done quickly. Um, so it doesn't bypass Timwall because, of course, you've got to still bring it by an order. Um, and then what happens is you have to enshrine it in primary legislation. So it has to go through the branches scrutiny as the builders going through. So it doesn't manage to bypass Timwall in that sense. So the economic substance part, which I referred to, that was an order that had to be moved by the Treasury Minister in July 2021. Um, it had to have Timwall scrutiny in order to go through. So it's not a way of bypassing in that sense. Um, but what it does is it allows government to act swiftly. So if there's international changes that if the Isle of Man doesn't comply with, we are going to be blacklisted. It's a very quick and efficient way of being able to get those changes in place prior to bringing forward the main legislation. And, and whilst I would agree that there is some uh, scrutiny, uh, as you know, uh, Tinwald orders don't get a huge amount of scrutiny on the whole, um, whereas primary legislation, there are at least three occasions in, in the House of Keys and three occasions in Legislative Council, whereas the fairly, fairly thorough uh, bit of uh, scrutiny happens. So, so to a certain extent, uh, to, to gain speed, and you know, I accept that some of these international requirements need fairly swift uh, action, uh, we are downplaying the, the, the scrutiny of, of, of these uh, 
important pieces of legislation? Well, my view is secondary legislation is just as important as primary. Um, I think I had a bit of a reputation when I was a backbencher prior to, be, prior to being a minister um, about scrutinising the secondary legislation. And I know that many of my colleagues, certainly in the two House of Keys I've been in, have been very much um, focused on the secondary legislation because it is just as important as the primary. And I think you are right, Phil. I mean, I think historically it's not necessarily had the same scrutiny or seen as being the same importance, but it does need to be um, because what goes through in an order um, can have fundamental ramification effects later on so there does need to be that parliamentary scrutiny and the processes are set up to do that um, and certainly my experience over the last six or so years in the House of Keys is there are members who take a very great interest in secondary legislation. And uh, thank goodness for Chris Thomas in this this particular occasion. Chris Thomas uh, uh, clearly was was very interested in this piece of legislation. Uh, Tim Johnson, uh, MHK, also had a, a, a few comments to make at second reading. Uh, so I suppose in a way I'm defeating my earlier argument because actually there wasn't that much scrutiny with the exception of Mr Thomas and uh, Mr Johnson um, in, in the House of Keys on this. Is that because everyone just thought this was fine or, or perhaps it's so... Uh, it was a bit too in at the deep end for many members to really get their heads around. No, I, I think it was the fact that it was actually quite a straightforward bill. So um, it dealt with, as I say, the economic substance to do with partners, which is a requirement of the EU Code of Conduct Group. So the island hasn't got a choice in doing it. If we do not do it, then we will end up being blacklisted. Um, the order had gone through in the July. Um, so obviously the new members of Tim Ward hadn't necessarily, or new members of House Keys, I should say, hadn't actually seen it before. But those who'd been pre- pre-existing had seen the order go through so aware of what it was about um, the other things that it enshrined was stuff that had already been discussed at the budget so things like around the allowance for TT homestay um, so actually I, I think it was more the fact that people had already seen what was coming forward so it wasn't like say for instance a dangerous dogs act or um, some, some other form of legislation where you'd go clause by clause by clause in real depth to make absolutely sure everything worked people already knew what was coming forward and they'd seen the practice behind it and in terms of the uh, i mean getting into a little bit more then of the detail the economic uh, substance requirements uh now this was uh, it seems as though this is being driven by the eu uh, code of conduct uh, group uh, looking into taxation matters um what was the what was the particular issue or concern i mean this wasn't specifically isle of man was it i mean this was a general one but uh, what what specifically was it that they were concerned about? Yes, so this is international. So it's been actually a staged process over a number of years. So there was the economic substance test for businesses. Now, most people out there are probably thinking, what on earth is economic substance? So to put it into very, very brief layman's language, um, basically it means you've got to, in order to operate in a ju- you're operating from a jurisdiction, you've got to have substance as a business. So it's not a brass plaque on the wall you've got to be actually physically operating and running something and providing a service from that business in that jurisdiction now initially it was only um, generalized companies Um, the eu code of conduct group met again in 2019 i think it was off the top of my head um, early 2020 and decided it should extend to partnerships as well because it didn't previously cover partnerships so you could have a partnership that was maybe say brass plated but didn't actually do any work in that 
that jurisdiction, but was reaping, should we say, the economic benefits of being in that jurisdiction. So what they did was said that they needed it needed to be extended to partnerships, and the aim was for it to be done um, within 2021. Um, so we, of course, looked at it ourselves, and we brought forward. So it's actually an extension of the economic substance that had come before. It's not something that came out of the blue. Um, we knew it was coming, um, and we worked accordingly to it. There was a, a slightly embarrassing need for amendment to the, the bill as, as it was originally drafted, and obviously it's now been amended and gone through the keys um, and about to uh, start its uh, passage through LegCo. Um, but there was this embarrassment in that uh, you were asking for things that you could already do, it would appear. Um, uh, so, so, I mean, again, what was the... Was the what was the internal scrutiny uh, in, in, in relation to this bill that, on the one hand, it was felt initially that this was really important to have, and then suddenly it was discovered, well, actually, we can already do this anyway. Right, so I, I think that's referring to the release of information to, interna- to international bodies um, and the amendment that came forward there. Um, I don't think it was an embarrassment at all. I think it shows that scrutiny works. So initially it was felt we had to be belt and braces, so it laid out very clearly the different things that could be shared. Um, I've got to thank Mr Speaker, actually, who we all know as a member is very much into his uh, legislation and gives a great scrutiny he came forward and spoke to Treasury around this around certain concerns about were we tied into releasing too much um, and things that weren't necessarily relevant so we did what we should always do as a government department we actually took another review and the feeling was that actually that while we kept the first part of the clause we didn't need the latter part um, in order for it to actually operate correctly so we agreed that the latter part could actually go. And I think actually that shows parliamentary practice working. It's not an embarrassment at all. Um, if someone comes forward and suggests something and you look at it again, as you rightly should, and you find that it needs to be changed, then it should be changed. There was also um, some amendments in relation to um, ch- changing the wording because there were certain circular references that were in both the order and the act when it get uh, the amendments to the um, act. So what we were actually doing was we were actually updating parts of the Income Tax Act as well because there were certain things that had been amended previously by other legislation that didn't necessarily, when you read it in totality, make sense. So we used the opportunity of this bill going through to correct those um, those things as well. So, so in relation to the income tax commissioners, I suppose uh, the first thing is what what is it the income tax commissioners actually do, and uh, why why would you need a piece of legislation to allow you to share information with them? So in terms of sharing of information, it's very important, particularly in these days of GDPR and everything else, that we are very, very clear on what can be shared and what isn't. The income tax commissioners have a very defined role around ensuring that there's appropriateness within the income tax system. And what we needed to do was make sure that any references um, to sharing of information were appropriate via GDPR and explicitly clear. Because we have to remember for all legislation that goes through, it's always subject potentially to legal challenge. And the courts have to interpret that legislation. It's important that when they read through it, they actually know what the intent of that legislation is. Because if you leave um, gaping black holes there, there is room for misinterpretation or for things to be interpreted a different way. So one of the things we're very clear on throughout the bill is ensuring that the language was correct. And it was very, very clear what could and could not be actually shared. And of course, uh, the courts actually look at Hansard as well, 
to to try and understand what uh, what the intention of the mover of of a piece of legislation is too, don't they? Uh, they do. I, I believe rather rather on a side note, I believe there was actually a judgment many years ago from Deemster Karouche when he was around that actually stated the court shouldn't take um, what was said in Hansard as being the interpretation of the acts. So I think while they make reference to it, they don't actually pull it out into the judgments because I'm, I'm sure someone with a better legal mind than me um, would be able to say that that judgment's either been set aside or there's been precedent since then. But my understanding is I think there was a ruling many, many, year, many years ago now, going back to Deemster Karouche, where it was said that while Hansard could be a useful tool, it shouldn't be used as if it was law itself. Um, and it's what's actually in the act that actually matters. I'm not wholly convinced that we've ma- managed to make the Income Tax Bill uh, 2022 sound the most exciting and interesting thing that anyone has ever listened to on Manx Radio. Um, so in a, a final last gasp attempt, um, how how is this bill going to impact on the vast majority of people on the Isle of Man? What, what, what changes are going to result from this in, in terms of people's day-to-day lives? Well, I think if I'm actually going to make it relevant to people, we'll focus to the one we started with, which is it puts the TT homestay as a proper um, tax allowance, whereas previously people would actually only would be able to claim up to a certain amount if they went over, the whole lot got taxed. Now it doesn't. It's only the portion above the limit that gets taxed. So that's for the real person on the ground. Um, and as for affecting people's lives, for the wider economy, um, it basically means that we are internationally compliant and it means that as an economy and businesses on the island are operating to a high international standard, which benefits all of us ultimately. And of course, that that is very important for the Isle of Man because we are, whilst not wholly dependent, we are quite significantly dependent on the work that it, that goes on in, in the finance industry. And it's not just finance either. If if a nation gets blacklisted, they are blacklisted. And that can have ramifications throughout the entire economy, not just particularly the sector that they might be being blacklisted for. Um, so it is very relevant, as boring as some people might find it. And hopefully not too many people have lost the will to live listening to this. Legislation passed by the House of Keys and Legislative Council impacts significantly on our lives, so I hope you feel better informed on the Income Tax Bill. This programme is available as a podcast which you can access from Manx Radio's website. Please get in touch with philgorn at manxradio.com if you have any views on the programme. But for now, I'm Phil Gorn. Thanks for listening.